I think what's what's become clearer, certainly in the last few years, as competition in the game industry has really stepped up, is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business. You know, you could be super lucky, you your game is an instant hit, it's resonating with users, but for when that's not the case, uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level, that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppSlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsliers.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Twig 112. We've got myself, Joe Kim. Uh, who else is here? Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, and special guest host, Joachim Akron, who will be taking the place of Mishka Katkoff for today. Mishka, where is Mishka? He just kind of disappeared. <laughs> Wasn't he supposed to be on? <laughs> I've been talking to him today. I don't know where he's now. Though. Okay. But we will be covering three news items today. The first is Sensor Tower reports that Genshin Impact brings in nearly $400 million in two months on mobile by VentureBeat. Second, EG7 acquires Daybreak by GamesIndustry.biz. And finally, the promise and challenge of Roblox future in China by TechCrunch. What's up, guys? How's it going? All good in the hood. Ready for this year to be over. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I think I'm taking the next three weeks off. You guys could just kiss my ass because I'm not doing any more podcasts. Uh, are we actually going to cancel to the holidays? No, let's, let's, let's do them. Uh, let's do one more. I, I can't. I, I, I need to take the next two weeks, the final two weeks off because. What are you I'm doing done. for the next two weeks? You okay? Maybe take Eric's place. Yeah, I, I'm actually. Because yesterday I, I launched uh, the gaming invest, like angel investor thing, the gaming angel fellowship. So my year is starting to sort of like wind down. I'm just putting together a lot of like, hey, this is what happened in 2020 regarding elite game developers. And okay. Yeah, yeah, for the audience who doesn't know you and EGD, elite game developers, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your podcast and all the other stuff you're, you're working on? Sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, JK. So uh, I'm hosting a website called EliteGameDevelopers.com, which is like geared towards people who are building games companies, founders, entrepreneurs, investors, people looking into into startups, doing their own studio, for instance. Uh, I have a blog, podcast, and a newsletter. Uh, so I started that last year when I left uh, Next Games, which I was a co-founder of here in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, still super active in the gaming space. I'm helping a lot of founders in the Nordics, in Europe, uh, sort of getting into more of angel investing now with this new platform that I launched yesterday called uh, Gaming Angel Fellowship, which is like a, a community for people who want to do angel investing in gaming. So check that out. Cool. And I will say for anyone who hasn't listened to your podcast, I think it's definitely very valuable, very useful. Uh, help connect me to a number of folks, as, as I've already mentioned to you, Kim. So definitely check that out. And I think we forgot to do updates. I guess I By the way, I listened to Joe Kim's Yo Kim, sorry, whatever podcast, and I, it's actually quite good. It's really um, interesting people that he gets on, and his voice is very. 
therapeutic. It's like a, it's very relaxing. You know, it's a good thing to listen to when you're chilling out, right? He's uh, he's really good. He really knows his stuff, and uh, it's worth the, worth listen if you're in the game developments area. So there we go. Thanks, guys. Okay, people, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Beta Hat, and then we will be right back. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and skew planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Welcome back from the commercial break, and let's start the news. So first, so Sensor Tower reports Genshin Impact brings in nearly $400 million in two months on mobile. This was reported by VentureBeat. And essentially... Based upon Sensor Tower data, they estimate the Genshin Impact brought in $393 million in its first two months from its September 28th launch. Note that this is a free-to-play adventure game on iOS and Android for those who aren't aware, but it's also on PC, PS4, and the Nintendo Switch. And the revenue described in this article is for mobile only. So China is Genshin's number one market for player spending with about $120 million, so about 30% of the two-month number. Japan is number two with about $98 million or 25%. The U.S. is third at $74 million, and it's fourth in South Korea. And interesting to note that in Europe, actually Genshin Impact is not really catching on. And between the two mobile platforms, iOS was about 57.5% of the revenue. And finally, I wanted to basically note a couple of quotes by from Randy Nelson, head of Mobile Insights at Sensor Tower, who stated a couple of interesting points. First, quote, Genshin Impact is the only mobile RPG that's performed this well so early in its release. Of course, we're not counting China's third-party Android stores in this. And for those that don't know, those third-party Android stores actually account for a ton of revenue, so cl so clearly the amount of revenue could be much, much higher. And secondly, there really isn't any mobile game like it visually or gameplays-wise. Gamers aren't accustomed to encountering free-to-play titles of this caliber on any platform, let alone mobile. So my take on this is that, first of all, shout out to Randy Nelson. Also, shameless plug, Randy interviewed me for a piece on mobile gaming trends in 2021. So I'll put a link in that in the show notes as well. But overall, I think this title will have a massive impact on the gaming market for a few reasons. First, this title is basically a point of pride for a lot of Chinese game developers. And I think based on its success, a lot of other companies will try to replicate its formula for success. That formula being super high production value, story, and most importantly, taking proven Nintendo titles, free-to-play, and then across other platforms. I think the focus now when we're talking about Chinese titles turns to Black Myth Wukong, but unfortunately, I think that the word on the street on this title is that it's not looking to be as good as advertised, like the quality, the production quality of the trailer is actually a lot better than the actual state of that game, but we'll see how it goes. I hope hope it they pull it off because I'm definitely very excited about that game as well, but what do you guys think? But, but just to be clear though, Black Myth is not on mobile, right? That's a PC console thing, right? Yes, although based upon the success of Genshin, we'll see what happens, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, my take on this whole like the whole game and like what the genre is there. I think it's so different from what we're, we're getting used to on mobile in the West. Like, you know, thinking about like Genshin's audience, like how different it is actually from the top grossing titles that, that are common in the West, like Marvel Strike Force, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, a top, 
those kind of games are more what the Western players are accustomed to. And I think even though like we'd start exploring this genre more in the West, I think the production costs are anyways going to be so damaging for a lot of folks that it's, it's very daunting to start thinking even about doing something like this. Of course, there's, there's a lot of premium games out there like Ocean Horn, which was built in Finland and others who've gone through this kind of like similar gameplay style of the attracting a similar audience, but like there's nobody who's going to try going after a free to play game like this with the, the amount of content that you'd need to create. It's pretty expensive. So like, get to that at some point if there's companies who who have the mindset who who can produce stuff like that but i i think it's still going to be tough to to you know swing the audience to that direction in a meaningful way at least in the next few years yeah i i would challenge that um because i think we do have companies in the west that do this pretty well um digital extremes in canada and grinding gear games in new zealand so that's a warframe and path of exile um, both, you know, soon to be under 10 cent. We'll see. Just depends on that layout deal. Um, but like, those are the two companies that have actually figured this model out and have made it somewhat cost effectively. Of course, yeah, these not, are no, not on mobile, Adam. Sorry, not on mobile, Adam. No, but I'm saying in terms of they could build a model like this, given their designs that work already quite well on PC console. I see. I see. Yeah. And like in terms of just the, the direct question of like the cost structure of making this work, those are the only two companies that I've seen in the West, I think, succeed with this. And I think the difference, like comparing digital, digital extremes, grinding your games and a lot of other premium developers um, is game systems, just avoiding the massive content treadmill. Like they have to be very, very smart about how they generate content. And you can see with both of these games, heavy reliance on proc gen or very simplistic tools. A lot of repeatable activities and taking a lot of the best practices from gotcha driven collection games and really actually dialing up the complexity even more to make for a strong collection game that can actually work um yeah because none of these games can work unless you have to collect all the gear all the weapons all the characters making all the content actually valuable for players because what i see is like okay most devs don't walk this path, but devs like Dauntless, I think that's Phoenix Point, I forget the name of the company, um, just recently acquired by Tencent. Dauntless is a good example of what a, a Western developer has actually attempted here, where um, in the end, they ended up making it too simple and have not been able to retain nearly as well. And even with their recent relaunch with Tencent's backing, um, they're still struggling to retain that retention, or sorry, retain those, that player base. And I would say just one correction here, uh, the game isn't on Switch. Um, it said to be coming, but there is no timeline on that. I think it's Phoenix Labs. Phoenix, Phoenix Labs, is yeah. The, the XCOM-like game or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think Dauntless is actually a a warning label, right? Because they spent a gajillion dollars on this game and it just bombed, right? And then wasn't it who acquired Dauntless? I thought I thought it was those uh, the guys at Garena. Didn't they acquire it? No, I think they're. No, no, you're right. You're right. So Garena, sorry, I, I just assume everyone is Tencent because Garena is basically Tencent, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they picked that thing up for pennies on the dollar because you know the game is not doing well, right? And and the game is beautiful and it's amazing. And I it, it, and it took forever to come out, right? It must cost. I, I can't even imagine how much that thing cost. But uh, but anyway, I it, back to uh, uh, Genshin. I think what you know what this is is really a great. Um, cross-platform success, right? And I've been poo-pooing cross-platform sometimes. But um, I, I think that that's kind of the best thing you could take away from this is like having a mobile SKU as well as a PC SKU and fundamentally maybe even a, a console SKU. Is it, it's not on console yet, is it? Yep, yeah, it's on PS4. Oh, it is? Sorry, sorry. Anyway, so um, I, think, I think that's what you have to think. But I think there's a lot of risk on this, man. I think there's a lot of like, false positives that are going on right now with with AAA production type games you know if you know i haven't done all the work yet which i'm actually probably doing relatively soon but high fidelity games don't do well on mobile in general right and if you actually look i would imagine that it's probably less than five percent of the revenue in the app store and if you looked at like the top 50 games in the west right forget the east forget japan forget korea um out of the top 50 games, we see what? PUBG, Fortnite, Call of Duty, 
which are all three shooter games, right? And Marvel Concepts of Champions. Those are the only real high, quote unquote, high production value games with animations, et cetera. And that's less than like 4% of the overall revenue um, in 2020. So there could be a trend that we're seeing that's going to increase this over time. But I made the same motherfucking argument seven years ago, right? That high production value games get in the way of what's most important about mobile, which is transactions, right? You don't want people playing your game. You want them playing with your transaction systems, right? And I must have said this on the podcast a gazillion times, but that's why fidelity is really tough and the controls are tough. And there's like all a host of other reasons, which I can go through the entire presentation at one point. But fundamentally, it's like a really tough sell on mobile to make this stuff work battery life, processor speed, the right type of device, blah, 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 um, and controls. I think those are the big ones. But anyway, um, I think you know this is a, is, is a really good proof positive of cross-platform and how, how mobile can work as, as a distribution mechanism, particularly in China. Um, and then also, you know, grow, broaden your audience in the West. Uh, but I think it's a very, very risky proposition. I don't imagine that any of these big publishers are going to go out and spend $75 million to make something like this to compete with Genshin. I think that would be folly, and that won't happen, really, honestly. It'll be other Chinese companies that keep throwing stuff at this. So anyway, that's kind of my take. I'll, I'll change you or um, I'll challenge you on one of your points, right? You said driving transactions is the major point. I would say as soon as you go to this high fidelity, it gets in the way of your live content, which is the entire lifeblood of free-to-play. And I would say that as a free-to-play developer, if you could get away with you know, producing new characters, producing new content, and it's significantly lower fidelity, but it can drive significantly more player value, then you're going to drive more re-engagement. Like I just think that uh, Genshin Impact is actually a great example where they can't produce the content fast enough for that player base. So the question right now is whether they can sustain and high fidelity gets in the way of being able to deliver quality content at a regular basis, which is needed to sustain. So I'd say I agree with you, but less so much on transactions, more on live content. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of one and the same. To, well, no, it's not actually. There, that, that, there's two different reasons. One of which is what you just said. The content cadence gets really slow because high fidelity requires lots of uh, development. But the other point is that, uh, and the, the point I've made before is that uh, the big thing with these games, particularly like Call of Duty and, and the shooter games, is that they have absolutely massive install bases, right? And so you can monetize at a lower level and, and, and do quite well. Um, and do, it doesn't require the kind of frequency that you see from social casino, puzzle, and, and other genres in terms of spend. Um, but uh, so it's it's another uh, I guess it's just another point of, of, of the dangers of something like a high fidelity content thing. Does that make sense? I think I'll just add like I think the audience, the core audience of these games, I don't think they're on mobile or they would want to play a game like this on mobile. So I think Switch and, and PC are like the obvious places. Can we stop talking about the Switch, dude? The Switch is a piece of shit, okay? Like, until the Switch 1.5 comes out, like, none of these games are viable, dude. The fucking on, the, the, the Wi-Fi chip is not good enough to play multiplayer games on the Switch. That's why no one plays any of even Nintendo's games, like Smash Brothers. It's a fucking piece of shit, okay? Now, this 1.5 version that's coming out next year, which is rumored, that thing I think is going to be the device to have if you really want to play online games on the Switch. You know, Nintendo is... Is, is finding new religion. And I have this whole bull cases on Nintendo, which I won't go into. But I would say that like, I, I, the future looks bright for them, but this, this current device, the 60 million units of the shitty device is, is, is going to hinder their progress in terms of their, their digital future. But anyway, moving on. Okay, let's talk about Daybreak Games. So uh, EG7 has acquired Daybreak Games. Uh, EG7 is Enad Global 7. Uh, it's a Swedish gaming group um, snatching up smaller gaming companies. They have now 10 companies worldwide, and they are across mobile, PC, and console. So some of the companies within it, the ones that I recognize, Big Blue Bubble, Big Blue Bubble from London, Ontario, Canada, uh, Team 17, who did like Overcooked and Worms, Frontier Developments, Roller Coaster Tycoon, and they worked with you, Joe, on what was it, Jurassic Evolution, the uh, Jurassic Park um, builder. I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, I was not really involved in that game, but yeah, that was like, it performed really well. Oh okay, good. 
Yeah. Um, Petrol, which is a marketing agency, and recently acquired Piranha Games, who work on Mech Warrior series. So their deck really talks about their buy and build strategy of picking up what I would call B tier studios that have found, say, pockets of success and are mostly on the games as a service spectrum. Um, 67% of the revenue comes from these studios. Um, and as well, steady income through work for hire. So approximately 37% of their revenue comes from services, which include that marketing agency as well as work for hire. So this feels like another embracer type strategy that we discussed um, last time. Synergy, they claim, is by owning all of these companies throughout the full chain. So that's marketing services, distribution, publishing, as well as the development capability allows them to um, say operate at a uh, lower cost, right? And although when they picked up Daybreak, they do end up with a studio that focuses a lot on third-party IP. So likely it's not the full chain completely, but still, um, there's still always some claim to synergy there. And from their deck, currently they are at 78.3 revenue and 18.6 EBITDA, which is um, for 2020 year to date. Um, so looking at Daybreak specifically, EverQuest series is kind of their claim to frame. That was when they were a part of Sony. Um, and then they broke off to become independent and they built H1Z1 Battle Royale. Um, there have, they've been kind of on a declining trajectory uh, for the last few years. Um, so we can look at the, uh, the revenue in a little bit, but they also had layoffs um, last year in 2019. They had a re realignment uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, and it really was splitting up to different sub-business units for each one of their key MMOs, especially from Planet Side, which I guess was one of the more underperforming ones. So H1Z1 as well, once was kind of a pioneer in the survival shooter battle royale space. It really fell off a cliff after PUBG and of course then after uh, Apex and Warzone. CCU on Steam reached a peak of 150,000 in June 2017, but now is 2,000 after about a season start peak. So that's that's pretty low. Um, they launched faster actually on console than PUBG, but actually still quickly lost ground there as soon as Apex and Warzone launched. So the majority of their value is really coming from their MMO profile, which is, you know, those games retain like a rock and just don't really scale is the problem. Like looking at CCU on Steam again, it seems pretty consistent, but small since 2015. Um, the only thing that's kind of upside that they talk about is the potential for a Marvel license, um, maybe in Marvel MMO, but of course that's just speculation. So what this company is valued at, according to this acquisition, is 300 million. So that's 160 in cash, 100 in stock, and 40 deferred based on uh, 2020 performance. Um, sorry, 2021 performance. Uh, so year to date, we're looking at something like 63 million in revenue, 26 million in EBITDA, and we're looking at roughly about a 41% margin, which is quite good. And a majority of that seems to be coming from the MMO space. So this looks like EG7 is picking up, um, trying to pick up companies with increasing EBITDA margin. And they say that they're increasing their margin overall from about 14% to 36% because of this acquisition. Um, so assuming that I'm missing one quarter in this net revenue in EBITDA, we're looking at roughly a 3.6 multiplier to revenue and an 8.65 multiplier for EBITDA, which are both high for the industry. Can you, can you say EBITDA before I choke you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, there you go. EBITDA. Uh, anyways, 2018 to 2019 dropped, um, but really the the... The part here is through 2020, they've seen 42% growth year over year, but that they really called it the cost reductions due to COVID helped as well as you know tailwinds of engagement from COVID. So who knows if that growth will continue? Um, and that's really the, the key question here. So from my perspective, this feels similar to the Embracer deal. This is capturing profit, increasing your margins, and I don't see a lot else. I think All right. the, so hey, let me a public service announcement. If you own a gaming development company and you are at all profitable, break even or profitable, find a banker and sell yourself, right? Because this is bullshit, right? There's, this is unbelievable that these companies are going for this, right? These valuations are insane. You know, we're gonna get to Roblox later, but like this is the time. Like it's never gonna get better than this, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've been in this business for a long time. There's never been more of a frothy mar uh sorry. 
frothy valuation for gaming companies ever, ever, period, end of sentence, right? Um, so this is the time, man. Don't, don't, don't wait. Don't be, don't be proud, dude. Just sell, 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 right? And there's a ton <laughs> of these companies that are coming up and doing this stuff. Uh, I've been waiting, Eric. Everyone's been picked off. Who's left? <laughs> I don't know. But I, dude, Daybreak would have been the last one in, the, uh, in my book, like that they would get acquired, right? It's crazy. Although the profitability is actually quite good. I'm, I'm really shocked by how profitable they are, but they're just running live services, right? And, and EverQuest is a cockroach, man. <laughs> I, I played that game for a long time. So I, I love that game. I, I, I love what they did, but they just totally, I mean, Sony just completely fucked that thing up bad, right? Like their whole. They, they just don't even know anything about online and stuff. And they just destroyed that, that business uh, over the years. Uh, anyway, sorry, I'm interrupting Mr. Adam. <laughs> sorry, you basically captured it all, right? Uh, <laughs> honestly, all credit to Daybreak, right? Like they, they built a very strong PC console games and service studio. Like EverQuest, again, H1Z1, both were great games, especially at their peaks. Um, but ultimately, they, they couldn't compete and capture a larger market in both the MMO space and in the Battle Royale space. Um, so this is, the, the real the question here is less about Daybreak and more about, is this the right strategy for something like an EG7 or Embracer or Stillfront, right? Capturing a bunch of lower tier developers, hopefully at a discount and then helping them grow. But it, even in this case, this is definitely not a discount, right? These, these multiples are not a discount. So... Is this really the most effective strategy, especially this year during COVID, picking up lower tier studios with frothy multiples based on inflated rev from COVID? This isn't bargain shopping. So is this really going to be an effective strategy moving forward? Joe? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this strategy to some degree when we talked about Embracer last week. I'm still largely pessimistic in terms of the longer term success of this model. Although, as I mentioned last week, I'm a bit closer to neutral after speaking to some of the folks, uh, basically a few of the CEOs that have been acquired by some of these groups. And I did get another chance to speak to another CEO of another acquired company since last week. I think one thing to note is that these pickups seem to be largely profitable, or at least throwing off positive free cash flow. So these, it's not like the older days when, when you're buying more speculative earlier companies that could just flame out. These companies are likely going to be able to survive for a longer while, but it's to your point, these are, these are companies that are living in the long tail and in declining brands. And you've got uh, so, so this model and the people in these companies are different, right? So you've got grizzled veterans with lots of experience as opposed to uh, some of the opportunities where you're betting on kind of younger folks with, you know, <laughs> new ideas and more, more of the Silicon Valley model. But as an old guy myself, I can't help but hold out hope that these guys can crank out some big new hits in this kind of model. Uh, but the big question, as, as we kind of talked about last week, is where is the synergy? Where is the advantage coming from? And can Central find some advantages, whether it's via scale or through kind of this argument that's being made by a lot of folks there, through building learning into the organization? Can they share best practices? Are there things that these accumulated groups can teach each other? that helps bridge that gap where some of these, you know, often what I call 90% studios can become 100% studios and make that big hit. I'll say from my own experience, I'm a little bit more skeptical on the learning part just because in my own experience, and especially with on the HD side of the of game development, kind of with these grizzled veteran types, it's been, I don't know, I just haven't seen that level of open-mindedness. I've seen a lot of contempt for free-to-play, a lot of weird, unoptimized practices, and frankly, a lot of complacency. So I think at some point, if some of these grizzled veterans kind of adopt newer practices and have a op more open mind and kind of, you know, someone lights a fire under their ass, I think, yeah, sure, good things could happen. But my own take is that we'll continue to see this play through, let's say, the first half of 2021. And then this is going to have to slow down. You know, a lot of this, to, to your point, a lot of this has been dollars flowing to gaming as it's been, gaming has been pandemic resistant. And we're seeing a lot of interest in gaming. I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm getting random emails. I'm like, how these guys get my email from, you know, these 
family offices and other other kind of like pockets of money that are like, oh, hey, gaming's the hot new thing right now. Can we invest in your company? <laughs> Things like that. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to last for, for, for that much longer. But uh, I do think that this has got to slow down next year at some point and we'll likely see longer term a rationalization of this model. Joachim, what do you think? Yeah, I, like the more I looked at this deal today, I think it's it's, it's a lot closer to what happened with Steelfront when they they acquired Good Games Studios, which basically was a merger where Good Games, uh, the owners actually became the majority owners of Steelfront in 2007. This was before the podcast, so this is like uh, something that was already happening back then. I think a lot of you know COVID definitely plays into the whole like excitement of you know the MA scene but i think this this is closer to a merger because the 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 main owner of daybreak this guy called jason epstein i don't know if any of you have met them met him but like he's now owning 10 percent of eg7 after this this transaction so it's pretty huge and i i think this is like something that Jason had in his mind that like if they're making 78 million annually, like how do you 10x that with a company like Daybreak? You go public. And in 2020, the best option is to to work with somebody in the Stockholm stock exchange, it seems. Um, so Steelfront was kind of off the table. They're already so established. Embracer, I think, as well. So you you pick up somebody like EG7, who's a the new kid on the block a bit in a sense like so how do you pull this kind of deal off like just looking at the deal 260 million up front out of that 160 paid in cash and 100 paid in shares which goes 10 percent to to mr epstein so the conclusion is i think there's gonna there's still a lot of like swedish public gaming companies uh out there looking for consolidation and then there's these opportunistic gaming studio owners. Uh, so matching these two together will, you know, create something beautiful in the short term. But yeah, I don't really believe this is like gonna move these grizzled developers anywhere. Um, so <laughs> I, I think, like, how do they create value from new games, like any of these yeah, steel fronts and embracers? That's a big question for me. Yeah, that is the the underlying question. It, can they actually do make any games with these yeah. organizations, right? Um, and I'm going to just reiterate what I said about Embracer is that, I, frankly, single A, double A studios, there's not really much place anymore within the ecosystem of console in, in general. Also, PC, you know, higher fidelity games are becoming more and more super common. You have something like Genshin Impact that comes out of nowhere from China, right? That's what you're competing against. Can these guys actually make those type of games? I doubt it, right? Um, and 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 I think we're just in an unprecedented valuation bubble. And when that happens, then you have a lot of investment banker types that come in and 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 basically do these financial engineering deals, which is Embracer, Stillfront, these guys, and and that's what's happening, right? And so they're they're trying to. It's like the last fool theory, like who's going to be the last one to buy these things, right? And so they bring this thing public and sell it to the public markets. And and that's their big cash out, right? And then who's who's going to be left holding the bag when two years from now they're trying to make a game and it's a it's you know they bomb. It's going to be just the investors on the Stockholm exchange. So like this stuff happens all the time. We're just in that kind of world. Uh, if anybody lived during the dot com days and pets.com and all that other stuff, that's it's this, it's a similar type of idea, just uh, just a different kind of flavor. I would I would say, but um, you know we'll see. I mean, like good for them. I mean they. Uh, now that you've explained it a little bit, Joachim, that makes more sense to me is that, you know, these Jason Epstein and other bankers are kind of the architects of of what can we do with this and how we can package it up. And you look at the marketing materials, the press releases, the websites, and you're like, holy shit, you know, they're making this thing look like they're like polishing this turd really well so that they can go out and make this make money on this thing. Right. And so good for them. Stillfront. And I think Stillfront's in a different league, of course. Um, but, uh, but, uh, certainly the other, what's the other company? I'm just totally blanking on it. Yeah, um, Embracer. Embracer definitely is doing that. Yeah. Right. Lipstick on a pig. Right. So 
anyway, yeah. I think that makes sense. And then now we're the, the next thing is like talking about Roblox, right? So <laughs> Roblox has taken quite an interesting turn over the last like few weeks, you know, as they do their roadshow to go public, right? And I am still a super, super bull on Roblox, but the valuation that they're talking about is insanity, right? Absolute insanity. So um, anyway, so the article we want to talk about is basically the promise and challenge of Roblox's future in China, right? And it was done by TechCrunch. And the coverage on this thing was so bad, except TechCrunch actually articulated exactly the way it should be articulated in the sense that pointing out what the risks and, 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 and the complexity of something like this, this kind of deal, kind of similar to what we've been talking about on the podcast before about China. So, so quickly, the partnership began in 2019. They did a, a, a joint venture with Roblox, 50-50 with Tencent, um, and it's called Songgu. I, well, I can't pronounce that. Anyway, so the prospectus, uh, Roblox's prospectus basically says they currently intend to this is important, publish and operate a localized version of Roblox, right? So that the uh, this new platform will allow people to create games and play those games programmed by others. So it is a brand new platform, right? That's one thing. Luobo is the name in China, um, and they're in the process of trying to bring in more and more developers to build up the ecosystem, uh, similar to what they've done in the West for the last, what, 14 years. Um, also, in, in Roblox's S1, they mentioned um, the Committee of Foreign Investment in the U.S. asked about questions about Tencent's equity investment in this and this JV, and uh, and and that's interesting, right? From the perspective of like they are getting some scrutiny here. Um, and then the other thing that was mentioned was that there's a startup called ReWorld, which is basically a total ripoff of Roblox that was funded by some of the biggest um, VC firms in China that uh, has about 100 developers, and I think they made 60 million investment already. And so ha they have a competition in China from an entrenched competitor, right? So this is a pretty good article, and I need to unpack it a little bit. And just to illustrate you know, the few things about doing business in China and what this means for Roblox. So obviously, Roblox had to partner with Tencent to do anything in China, right? That's obvious, right? This is the modus operandi of China, right? The partnership is basically 50-50 split. Not necessarily 50-50 split of revenue, but I, who knows what it is, but it's probably in that, in that realm. So just to, it's a bit unclear um, from the article. Uh, obviously, Tencent's going to be required to get approvals going forward for content. And again, I'm not sure how this works, because if it's user-generated content and it's constantly being updated by, new, by users, it's going to be really, really hard to, uh, to censor or whatever they want to do like uh, to approve it, right? So that's going to be interesting. And again, this is a whole new version of Roblox, right? This is like a fork development situation in which they're going to have a completely different instance of Roblox in China that's going to only be owned and operated and developed by, by Chinese developers. So none of the content, in theory, from the West is going to move over uh, from the way it works. Um, and then back to ReWorld real quick. So you know, this is a total copycat that was funded by these big venture firms in China. Uh, $60 million in investment started in 2019. And they have 100 plus people that are working on on the on to build this network. Um, it seems still very fledgling, but um, but but we'll see how about how competitive it is. And then I think it is interesting that the government is questioning about this investment, and they disclose this in the S1, right? You know, does this really mean the U.S. government might be actually looking more and more at ten cents investments, kind of like what we've been speculating for the last like six months? Um, or with Biden in office, does it mean that this all goes away because because they're not going to really be that tough on China? Who knows, right? So we'll see. Um, so I look at this from a perspective of like, can they really have success in China with in this in this particular format? And this is what my mind immediately goes to, right? Like, how is this going to work, right? I think on the positive side, having Tencent there makes sense, right? Tencent's going to be a great partner potentially if they if, if they believe in it and it makes money. Tencent will continue to invest in it, but if it doesn't, they'll just pull the plug as they always do. Like with like uh, uh, Call of Duty on PC, they just completely pull the plug on that. Um, uh, and I think actually creating a new experience in China is a good idea, right? Chinese content for Chinese players makes sense to me. Um, but if you look at closer, like the split here doesn't really make financial sense, right? If you're a 50-50 split or somewhere in the at that realm, 30% for iOS to the extent that it's on iOS, you have a 100-person engineering team in China. Now, maybe it's less expensive. 
and you're also competing against a really well-funded st startup and their pl their platform took 14 years to build in the US so like exactly what kind of investments going to be required to scale this thing up and to be competitive with the, res the rest of the market i think it's a real challenge there now so my obviously cynicism is is normal right for me of course, when they announced this during the IPO, this just sends the interest go through the moon, right? Like part of the, this is all part of the marketing vehicle of the IPO. And so when we were talking like two weeks ago about this, it was like worth like 20 billion. Now the deal is supposedly gonna be worth 40 billion and 40 billion for Roblox, as much as I love them is insane. Okay, it's insane. Like it is, there's so much that needs to happen to justify this $40 billion valuation. And if that's what they go out at, I, I can't get as excited about it, right? Because ultimately, they have to realize this expectations. And over time, it's going to be harder and harder for them to do that, to continue this growth, particularly because what they had, the growth they had last last this year with mobile and, and, and COVID, right? And so anyway, I, I love Roblox, uh, you know, when they you have to understand they were valued at 8 billion the last time when 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 um Andreessen invested in them and now in like less than 6 months do you think they're worth <laughs> 6 times did I do the math right i don't know anyway i'm uh i think it's crazy now this is going to be a really hot ipo it's coming out any day right they're trying to do it before the end of the year i think um so i i i i'm I, i'm still a bull but i just it just yeah, the evaluation is getting insane. I don't know. I hope that all made sense because I'm just kind of rambling now. But anybody, any other thoughts out there on this? Nothing. Like <laughs> I, I, I think it's it's part of the the whole valuation is part of the the 2020 crazy. So you know you can look at it through that kind of lens and just say that okay, that's that's expected in a sense that like when Andreessen was doing the deal, that was pre-COVID, most likely when they closed it. So a lot of things have happened uh, in the capital market. So, you know, <laughs> I think it's totally doable. Oh, it's coming and it's yeah. oversubscribed. I mean, I, I bet they have like a hundred time oversubscription on the IPO. Like it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, good for them. Uh, yeah. I have a whole analysis about like the pros and cons and what the risks are with this, with the company that I'd be happy to talk to anybody that's involved. But um, I, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch, right? Because if it, it's like, yeah, they're priced to perfection, right? They have to execute flawlessly and make China work and grow and grow both, both geo and grow both and, 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 and increase the uh, um, uh, sorry, the, uh, demographics and like all these things need to happen and man <laughs> 40 billion doesn't leave a lot of room for for uh for mistakes so uh so good for them though you know and it's uh, great for me frankly i mean all this is great for me mr kress is like bringing it in right everyone wants to talk to me right so it's good i got nothing to complain about i'm just just shaking my head like in this in in, in disbelief at that at how scaled it now the other point i wanted to make that joseph kind of mentioned is that what i do think is that all this activity around gaming during COVID is really really good for the ecosystem i think once you get converted to interactive like you don't go back like you keep playing right you buy a console you buy a switch you buy a playstation you buy you know you you start playing games on your mobile phone I don't think you go away because it is far more compelling. I've always said this since the days of EA is interactive is better than passive. And once you get an experience that makes you convert in that way, I think you stay forever, right? In, in one capacity or another. So while I don't think we'll see these insane numbers, you know, and this, this hype, uh, we will see a, a bigger install base and user base that will help continue to grow the interactive business over time. That's my my kind of like long-term thesis here. Um, and yeah, think uh, about Roblox as a public company. What can they really do at that stage without getting punished by not you know executing on China, which is definitely going to take years and years and a lot of investment. Like, what are the growth prospects really? Are they going to go do M and A by other? No, 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 no. That's not what they're doing. They they basically, I mean, I don't want to go too far deep into this, but they, what they need to do is expand the demographic by attracting 
bigger developers, right? The fundamental problem with that is that they alienate their existing developers that have made their network, right? By making the tools more complex, by giving better economics to bigger developers, right? So there's this management of, of developers that needs to happen in order for them to really expand their demo, you know, if that's their goal, right? Um, new business models, et cetera, like that could help as well. Geographic expansion, I think is relatively simple relative to, to the uh, um, demographic expansion. Um, mm. But, but no, they have a lot of challenges ahead of them. And also just this absolutely banner year with the mobile game that makes it really tough next year. Uh, and so what could happen is that they fall, right? They don't, they don't hit rev, they don't hit growth targets, right? They will be fine the first couple quarters, but then in the back half of like second quarter of next year, it'll be really interesting to see what they post up relative to, you know, the COVID bump. So, um, but now we're seeing a COVID explosion, right? And so everyone's going to be at home this holiday. They're going to be playing all kinds of games, right? And that's going to probably last until at least March, right? You know, so anyway, I think I, it's, it's a perfect storm, right? It's a great time to go public, right? Um, and 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 it should just fly. This thing should fly, like. Uh, but uh, eventually, it'll come back down to earth to some degree. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the way to think about these kinds of companies and businesses is basically more around. I don't think you can value these kind of companies based upon discounted cash flow. You've got to be basically be looking at the market cap and seeing what the potential market cap growth can be based upon optionality. And so when you're when you're valuing a company based upon option value, then it's really about, you know, how likely is this management team not only able to get you from one to N against your existing business, but from X to Y to Z to A, B, C, D, you know, all the other additional lines of businesses. And that's something that I think that, you know, again, huge fan of Roblox. But they haven't proven the capability of being like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, adding these other lines of businesses to then justify, okay, this is a management team that can add those additional lines of businesses and grow the market cap substantially, right? So, so against that, the valuation of the company in that light, for me, that's becoming increasingly harder to see as we see the valuation start to jack up. Yeah, and then, yeah, at a twenty billion, I could I could discount that and we'd be fine. But at forty, that's freaking frightening because you're right. They have been around for fourteen years, and I don't think their age demographic has has changed one fucking bit. Right? It's fifteen to eighteen. It's not even fifteen to eighteen. It's like eighteen to 15, eight to fifteen, and then everyone churns out. Right? And so if they haven't managed to figure out how to attract audiences longer, and these are really dedicated players that love Roblox but just cannot stand it after a while, right? Uh, this has been an issue for them forever. That's their core part of their execution that needs to happen besides Geo. Geo is interesting. Uh, I'm not really too, I haven't been really looking at it. I mean, it's so US centric that uh, there seems to be a lot of opportunity on the Geo side, but particularly with mobile. Um, so I think that's that, that will something, that will be actually a, a tailwind for them for a while, I think. But, uh, but I agree with you. Good point, Joseph. All right. I, anything else? No, I think. Okay. Well, I, I will say one thing. Maybe we were a little bit negative on the sort of EG7 and kind of like this roll-up strategy. I will say this. I do expect a hit or two to come out. Just the sheer volume, right? The, the sheer volume of studios that have been rolled up. And just knowing some of the stuff in the pipeline, do expect some hits to come out. But then just be careful. Don't be like the NBA that extrapolates based upon one data point, right? Like, what, so, did, what, what did EG7 make before they acquired this? Like, what was their portfolio of games? You mean the companies that they owned before? Yeah, like what, what games are that are popular that they had? Okay, so it's Team 17. It's uh, Big Blue Bubble. It's, what else was there? Um, th there wasn't a, a whole lot, to be honest. Yeah, what, yeah. Right? yeah I'm not speaking specifically about EG7, but I'm saying within these roll-up groups, like... <laughs> There's a lot of studios there. There's going to be a hit or two that pops off. But then is that a head fake or is that a trend? I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just warning the audience not to like interpret too much when a hit does like pop off, let's say sometime next year. <laughs> yeah. With, with Daybreak, when they work with external IP, it's always like, hey, 
like how's that Marvel game gonna do? And it reflects back to their stock price if it doesn't do well. So all right. Oh my god, you should look at these guys. All right, never mind. These guys are like slick ricks, dude. Who's a like <laughs> Alan Hunter, Ben Granados, or whatever? They just look like bankers. <laughs> <laughs> I love this financial engineering at its finest, dude. Eric's bias. Them. I'm so you know, in some ways, I'm so fucking jealous because I Chris Pitts. Chris Pitts is a genius. This guy, I work with at Kabam. He worked at Zynga. We were talking about this shit six years ago. Is that we got to do this roll-up strategy, find some financial backing, and let's do this, man. Let's get together and figure out. We know this industry well enough to like do this, and all these cock. Sorry. All these guys are doing this right now and killing it, dude. They're going to make gajillion dollars, right, on all this stuff. Still front, bracer, these guys, right? If they can sell out, if they do it right, they're just, they're just timing it perfectly. I'm fucking jealous, dude. I'm a hater, dude, because I'm jealous because we could have done this exact same thing, but it's fucking a lot of work. It's like, it's so, it's like boiling the ocean, man. And we're going to talk to Chris Petrovic on Thursday about this, but like, it is literally out there all the time, like, schmoozing and talking to people and seeing what what's out there and like you know financial engineering and all this stuff it's just a lot of work and so more i'm i'm again i am i am giving them props man they're doing what they need to do they see an opportunity they're going after it right it's what bankers do this is how bankers make money is they just go after this shit right good for them but uh, I, I, the guys that still front, most of those guys are all bankers right these guys are definitely bankers a lot of these guys um but, uh, but, and certainly, uh, man, certainly the guys that are, you know, the THQ Nordic guys are all bankers, but anyway, good for them. <laughs> all right, cool. So on that positive note, <laughs> that was, that was positive. Dude, that's as positive as I get, dude. All, all right. right. I think that's it. Later. Have a good Bye, uh, holiday. If I don't talk to y'all. Yeah. All right. See you guys. Uh,